Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I'm not alone. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. The pretty one, look. Talk to me, look. Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the hip. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams. He's still got me down with this and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, 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 who's, who's life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount. Especially at first, an enormous amount of horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again to come back even stronger. Dulcie Markham was known in the media as the Angel of Death, the Black Widow, and Pretty Dulcie. She was a key figure of the Australian underworld across multiple cities from the 1920s right through to the 1950s. According to one crime reporter, she saw more violence and death than any other woman in Australia's history. Whereas Dulcie never murdered anyone and was not a murder victim, she was definitely murder adjacent, losing no less than five lovers and two husbands to gang violence. This is part one of a two-part special on Angel of Death, Dulcie Markham. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. As a comedy true crime podcast, we sometimes use humour to lighten up stories about murder, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones. Yeah, because murder ain't funny. No, no it isn't. But what happens around it can be quite ridiculous. If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you. Yeah, seriously, keep walking. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. We've had quite a few new ones join our fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. As a patron, you have access to dozens of other episodes, including our red wine drinking monkeys gone wild first season and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes. As a patron, you'll also have access to exclusive patron-only episodes where we pretty much do what we do in the regular episodes, but we do it while being oiled up and chasing tiny teacup pigs through a miniature version of Stonehenge. That's true. Yeah, true story. 
Levels above $5 receive stickers and handmade Barney badges, and levels $10 and above get a selection of bloody legendary merchandise. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. Dulcie May Markham was born on February 27, 1914 at the Crown Street Women's Hospital in Surrey Hills, Sydney. She was the first child of 20-year-old Florence and 21-year-old John Markham. The young couple had married a year earlier. Dulcie's father listed his occupation as theatrical artist on her birth certificate. Dulcie's mother Florence's occupation was listed as home duties. But this was far from the truth, Tara. Florence, known as Flory, had form, having been pinched a few times for theft and also copping a charge of idle and disorderly. According to Angel of Death, Dulcie Markham, Australia's most beautiful bad woman, by Lee Straw, a magistrate told Florence... I am very concerned about the company you are keeping and worried you are going downhill very fast. Australia's most beautiful bad woman. i got to say, that's some life goals. <laughs> it sure is. With Dulcie only a wee bub, the Markham family moved from their overcrowded terrace house in Surrey Hills to a bigger pad in the up-and-coming suburb of Waverley, close to the beaches of Bondi, Tamarama and Bronte. In July 1920, when Dulcie was six, her mother gave birth to another girl, whom she named Florence, which I'm assuming was after herself. Oh yeah, Florence Jr. Indeed. A little sister for Dulcie. Happy days. Well, Tara, not exactly. Why not? Twas a different father. Twasn't! Twas. In fact, on Florence Jr.'s birth certificate, the father is listed as unknown. Scandalous! This may for some heated discussions inside the Markham family home, with Daddy slash I'm not the Daddy John eventually saying, that's it, I'm out of here, and leaving the family home just before Dulcie's 10th birthday. As you can imagine, this made life quite difficult for Mummy Florence, Florence Jr and Dulcie, but somehow they survived. It's not clear how Flo Senior put food on the table, but possibly they ensured with the proceeds of her petty crimes. Yeah, well, idle and disorderly doesn't really pay the bills, trust me. According to Dulcie, who would tell some reporters a few years later, by the time she hit 13, she was a more than ordinarily pretty. She also claimed to have won quite a few beauty contests in New South Wales and Queensland. Oh, we all have. Yeah, pageant girl. In 1927, John and Florence Markham were formally divorced. Two years later, at the age of 15, Dulcie ran away from home. Fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, she ran straight into the arms of the notorious Madam and Sydney underworld queen, Tilly Devine. Tilly must have immediately seen the value of the young, pretty, golden-haired Dulcie and took her under her wing, stowing her away in one of Tilly's Palmer Street Darlinghurst brothels. Tilly Devine ruled the streets of Sydney with a foul mouth and an even fouler temper. Standing a towering height of 5 foot 5 inches, she made up for her lack of physical presence with pure, unadulterated moxie and spite. Quick with her fists and quicker with a kick in the scrotum, she was feared and loved by the local population. According to the book Angel of Death by Lee Straw, Tilly once put the heel of her stiletto into a man's forehead because he looked at her the wrong way. You've done that right. Sure have. Feel like doing it now. <laughs> Tilly was born Matilda Twiss in Camberwell, London in 1900. She was working the streets as a teenage sex worker when she met a young Australian soldier named James Devine during World War I. By 1918, James had married Tilly and a year later he took his bride back to Australia. 
It wasn't long before they had a good line going in prostitution, theft, extortion and sly grog. Illegal alcohol. Indeed. Toilet wine? Yeah, more like bathtub gin. These were the heady days of the infamous Sydney Razor Gang Wars, so named after the Pistol Licensing Act of 1927, where the Parliament of New South Wales imposed severe penalties for carrying concealed firearms and handguns. Sydney gangland figures then chose razors as preferred weapons for their capacity to inflict disfiguring scars and, you know, kill people. Even though Tilly had dozens of necklace goons to support her, the underworld queen had inflicted a lot of these disfiguring scars personally. After one such brutal attack, Tilly walked away singing, I am the notorious Tilly Devine. By the mid-1920s, Tilly owned several brothels around Sydney and sold cocaine as well as Mary Jane and booze. Tilly saw Dulcie's potential and schooled her in the ways of seduction. Mm. Hey, baby. Soon the blonde teenager was a most sought-after addition to Tilly's stable. Nearly two decades later, in 1940, Dulcie was asked by reporters how she got her start in the Sydney underworld. She told them, without a hint of shame in her voice, I was pert, more than ordinarily pretty, and fellows took a lot of notice of me. I went out for a good time. Two months after Dulcie had run away, her mother Florence reported her missing. Two months? Yeah. She obviously wasn't too concerned with her daughter's disappearance. Well, she was quite pert and and more than ordinarily pretty, and fellows took a lot of notice of her. Yes. Now officially listed as a runaway, Dulcie was brought to the attention of the women's police by the Child Welfare Department, and a warrant was issued for her arrest. Her arrest? Whatever for? Being an uncontrollable child. (laughs) Sounds like you as a kid, Barney. Hey, everyone stole cans of coke and defecated off bridges when I was growing up. (laughs) I stand corrected. Dulcie's description on the warrant read, 15 years of age, 4 foot 10 inches high, thin build, fair hair and complexion, blue eyes, dressed in a dark dress with a white straw hat. I bet she was pissed they didn't include more than ordinarily pretty on her warrant. They should have written, she may not be wearing the hat. Yes, she may have taken off the hat. It's been two months. The New South Wales Police had a special unit for tracking down these wayward girls. Named the Women's Police, this elite unit was headed by one of Australia's first female detectives, Lillian Armfield. Oh, she's a bloody legend, she is. There's another story there. Yeah, yeah, I've been eyeing that off, actually. Of course, the great fear was that the missing girls would turn to sex work, which was widely regarded as a fall from femininity. Even though this was a time of the Roaring Twenties, the age of flappers and wild parties, quite a few pearl-clutching conservatives existed. Well, also, she's a child, so pimping her out is not cool. That's true, but 15 in the late Twenties is like 25 in now years. Mm. Although this time did see a deep shift in the female identity, purist and temperance movements expanded the notion that women were expected to be delicate, refined and demure, and of course well-behaved and near-invisible. Um, a lot of people still think that way. Have you not seen the emails they send me? <laughs> you had it come in your mouthy broad. <laughs> well, that's right. A fall from femininity. What a load of horseshit. <laughs> For a lot of these young women, sex work was a way out of that crap. Out of factory work, home duties and abusive husbands. To take charge of their own destiny and control their own lives. Not to say that some women weren't exploited and even trafficked. Meanwhile, police had the power to arrest women on the street and charge them with vagrancy. As in, no lawful means of support. As in, are you married, does your husband have a job? Ugh, that's giving me a rage stroke. 
Detective Lillian Armfield knew the bad streets of Sydney backwards and would track down the runaways in opium dens, fortune tellers' lairs, sly grog shops and brothels. Out of the 300 or so girls a year that went missing, Lillian Armfield tracked down at least 95%. They were either returned to their parents or put into girls' homes. But Tilly Devine kept her most valuable asset, Dulcie Markham, close by and protected from the roving patrols of the women's police unit. Dulcie knew she was onto a good thing. She was smart, tough and strikingly beautiful. She was fully aware of what she had and she used it to her advantage. Dulcie found a friend and peer at Tilly's brothel in the young and pretty private school educated Nellie Cameron. Nellie had been employed by Tilly since 1926. Dulcie and Nellie became fast friends. The pair were the most sought-after sex workers in Sydney, easily earning over £100 a night. In 1930, Dulcie's eye was caught by a small-time crim and standover man, 21-year-old Cecil Scotty McCormick. Born in Orange in country New South Wales on May 2nd, 1909, young Scotty already had quite the criminal career. Standing five foot five inches tall. Is everyone in this story five foot five inches tall? Is Pretty that what's much. happening? Okay, yeah. all right, good. good. Good to know. Everyone's five foot five except Dulcie. Standing five foot five inches tall with brown hair, blue eyes, and a soft complexion, Scotty had first been sent to Gosford Farm Home for Boys when he was 14, charged with stealing. Gosford Farm has been described as a real bastard of a place and a breeding ground for crims by several journalists. He immediately became friends with notorious Sydney gangster Chow Hayes. We covered Chow back in episode 98. We certainly did. Chow Hayes was a violent, sadistic standover man and murderer. In 1930, Chow became the first Australian criminal to be described by police as a gangster. After Scotty served his time at Gosford, he was charged with break and entering, which got him 12 months in Long Bay Jail, big boy prison. He was only 16 years old at the time. He was only 16 years old. Yes, thank you, Michael Caine. By the late 1920s, Scotty was in a gang, or push gangs as they were called in Australia. Although the violence around Dulcie had been somewhat normalised to her, the level of mayhem on the street escalated. While Tilly Devine had staked her claim on Darlinghurst and Woolloomooloo, another queen of the underworld was controlling Surrey Hills. Her name was Kate Lee. Kate was now challenging Tilly, and an all-out war had erupted. Kate and Tilly were well matched with years of experience between them, both as ruthless and cunning as each other. Over the next decade, a lot of blood was spilled while long-established territories were won and lost. It's interesting that in the late 1920s, both the crime lords in Sydney were women. Sisters representing! I know, cool, eh? Yeah. The police were completely off guard and didn't see it coming. Some historians believe Kate Lee and Tilly Devine were the first female organised crime bosses in the world. Mm, I don't find that a little hard to believe. Scotty McCormack and Dulcie Markham were living the high life in this golden age of crime. But trouble was afoot, Tara. After Scotty had passed the hat around for donations to pay the legal fees for friend and fellow crim Guido Coletti, Scotty had decided to keep the money instead. Uh-uh, not smart. Not cool. Problem was, Guido was popular and the lover of Dulcie's friend Nellie Cameron. Scotty now had a target on his back and was distracted enough to let another hood set his eyes firmly on Dulcie. Hey, baby. <laughs> 
While Scotty went to Melbourne to lie low, a bloke by the name of Alfred Dillon moved in and tried to cut his lunch. Yum. <laughs> Not that kind of lunch, Barney. You're an idiot. <laughs> it's good when you actually do the, like, you know, the mean comebacks to yourself, yourself. Uh, I can just sit back now. You've got it covered. Oh, you fucking asshat, Barney. <laughs> <laughs> You're a fucking idiot, aren't you? Uh, although Dulcie never gave it up for Dylan, she did let him take her to the movies on more than one occasion. Scandalous. Meanwhile, Sydney detectives had told their Melbourne counterparts about the arrival of Scotty. He was arrested in a house in East Melbourne and told to get his criminal ass back to Sydney. Here, he was subsequently charged with habitually consorting with criminals and assaulting a police officer. He got six months in Long Bay Jail. Oh, at least he probably had some friends there from last time. Oh, g'day, Scotty, you loathsome bastard. G'day, Bruce, how's it hanging? Oh, as long as I'm not hanging, I can't complain. Oh, eh? <laughs> that's the attitude, champ. Oh, it's good to be home. Dulcie, ever resourceful, went about finding a different way to secure her income and housing situation, leaning on the kindness of Alfred Dillon. Yeah, take me to the pictures. Um, he was pimping her out too. I don't know, kindness, is it? <laughs> <laughs> leaning on the kindness, pimping out. Yeah, it's uh, kind of the same thing. Okay, look, all right, hey, it's, it's your yeah, script. Yeah. When Scotty saw those big doors swing open in Long Bay in December 1930, he tracked down Dulcie and their relationship resumed. Was Scotty pimping her out too? Oh, yeah. Oh, so everyone just does. All the boyfriends were. Oh. Oh. Okay, that wasn't clear to me. For I am but a doe-eyed, naive little ingenue. Love struck Alfred Dillon was heartbroken and, of course, Scotty was none too happy with Dillon. Ah. He didn't just cut his lunch, he pimped it out. Green-eyed monster. Yes, green-eyed mm. monster sandwich. On the evening of May 13th, 1931, at around 7.45pm, Dulcie met Scotty on a street corner in Darlinghurst. It was a short meeting. They chatted for a few minutes and then kissed. No, no that's not how people kiss. Stop it, stop it. Dulcie was to see a flick at the King's Cross Picture Show and Scotty had been planning to play some billiards and catch up with his old mate and mentor Chow Hayes. It would be the last time Dulcie would see her lover Scotty alive. After they said their goodbyes, Scotty headed towards the Strand Hotel on the corner of Crown and William Streets. Here he ran into Alfred Dillon, or more precisely, Alfred Dillon's knife. Dulcie was accosted by a friend in the cinema who told her Scotty had been in a fight and had been taken to the hospital. Dulcie arrived too late and was told that he'd been pronounced dead on arrival. The heartbroken Dulcie was shown to the morgue to identify her lover's body. Police soon arrested Alfred Dillon and he was charged with Scotty McCormack's murder. On the 15th of June 1931, Dulcie Markham made her first public appearance as a member of Sydney's Underworld and the press went gaga for her. Entering the coroner's court for the inquest into Scotty's death, in a blood-red dress, a beige flapper hat pulled close to her head, matching red lipstick and golden hair, her movie star good looks enchanted the crowded courtroom. Flashbulbs went off as she smiled and waved to the crowd. Court reporters described her as exceedingly pretty and sprightly. <laughs> Alfred Dillon was committed to trial after the inquest, but sensationally the jury could not reach a verdict. In a second trial, he was found guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter and sentenced to 13 years in Long Bay Jail. Hmm, I wonder if Scotty's friends threw him some kind of welcoming party. Yeah, blanket party, probably. Yes, yeah. I'd say so. 
In the months following Scotty's death, Dulcie played the part of a grieving widow, wearing a black wig and dark clothing in public. A black wig? That's a new one. But party girl Dulcie could not grieve forever. Before too long, she was back in her sleeveless flapper dresses. Ah, yes, designed so that the sprightly young women could move their arms more freely, dancing to the music of the time, which was mostly just variations of the Charleston. And Nickelback. No, not Nickelback. According to Angel of Death, Dulcie Markham by Lee Straw, in 1926, one disgruntled Sydney cider wrote into a local paper complaining of flappers and possibly Nickelback. They have possession of the city. Nobby need chickens to plump hurt 17ers. There are many other grades of flappers. The women to 40 who want to call back their youth with paint powder and pointed knees. <laughs> Sydney is almost a city of knees now. So far as the feminine portion is concerned, this too is in the middle of winter. If women in obedience to fashion will display their knees now, when summer comes, what may we expect? <laughs> Later that year, Dulcie was charged with consorting and placed on a 12-month good behaviour bond. A month later, she was charged with vagrancy and sentenced to seven days hard labour. In November, she was charged with soliciting and was presented to the court as a known prostitute. She was placed on an 18-month good behaviour bond. Keeping her head down, Dulcie only received a charge of indecent language in 1932. Fuck that. Hmm. By 1933, it was time for Dulcie to try her luck down in the big smoke, down south on the sunny shores of Melbourne town. The Weekly Times described the 1930s Melbourne crime centres as pest spots of immorality, commonly sordid as they are vice-promoting. By the end of the 1930s, Melbourne had a higher per capita crime rate than London. Well, Dulcie should fit right in. She did! She settled first in Fitzroy, just north of the city. Here she found work in several brothels and was pinched a few times for soliciting on the street. Nellie Cameron was in Melbourne at the time with lover and soon-to-be husband Guido Coletti. The trio combined forces and the two most notorious sex workers in Sydney went about separating the money from Melburnians' wallets with some very lucrative, well, sex work. Rusty trombone, 50 quid. Golden trombone, 150 quid. In 1935, Dulcie returned to Sydney and was promptly arrested and charged with soliciting and breaching a bond and given 21 days in Long Bay Jail. How's it going, Bruce? G'day, Dulcie. You look lovely today. Feeling the heat from the jacks in the Harbour City, Dulcie moved again, this time to Brisbane. It's certainly not less hot there. <laughs> Her entry in Queensland's stinking humid capital did not go unnoticed. One Brisbane newspaper reported on her beauty and clothing and wrote, The way she carries herself were attractions to which many a gay pavement Lothario found it difficult to resist. Ah, uh, yeah, gay meant a different thing in 1935. Ah, gay straight by and whatever gender. Sounds like she was turning heads. Hey, baby! Soon after landing in Brizzy, Dulcie found herself a new lover. One described in newspapers as the prettiest boy in gangland. That's not a particularly intimidating nickname. No. Actually, shadowy underworld figure Frank Bowen, the prettiest boy in gangland, had some massive form up and down the East Coast. He and Dulcie were married on March 4th, 1936 in Fortitude Valley. Frank was listed on the marriage certificate as a salesman and Dulcie as a domestic. Domestic sex terrorist. Ooh, those words go well together. A few weeks later, on March 27th, Dulcie was arrested for being drunk and disorderly. 
walking serpentine along Albert Street with a number of men, she was hauled off to the city watch house. Dulcie used many bad words in a very loud voice all the way to the cop shop. When she was deposited in a cell, according to police reports, she became more than a little violent and broke the toilet bucket. <laughs> Two days later in court, she was fined for using obscene language and ordered to pay the value of the bucket. After the magistrate handed down his findings, Dulcie hurled a torrent of abuse at him so disgusting and vile that he put his hands over his ears, lay down on the floor and cried. <laughs> really? It was that bad? Well, he didn't cry, but he was very upset. I like Dulcie. Same. In May, Dulcie was back in the courts for, can you guess, Tara? Um, consorting? No. Foul language? No. Soliciting? No. Drunk and disorderly? No. It was impersonating the Under Secretary for Justice by sending a telegram in his name. That was going to be my next guess. Mm-hmm. It was all about a permit for a sideshow stall in Kingaroy. You see, Frank, her husband, was a carny in his spare time. He was? No. No. Not really. It was some kind of extortion thingy protection racket or some such. A court reporter from Brisbane's Truth newspaper wrote this about Dulcie. A platinum blonde with deep blue eyes flickered her long eyelashes when questioned and sat artistically poised. She was a young woman who knew how to exploit her charms. Yeah, she's got a great ass, and you've got your head right up it. <laughs> I know. It sounds like that reporter and the others were all writing erotic fan fiction about her, weren't they? Oh yeah. Oh my God! So many, uh, so many. Trouser snakes uh, saluted when she walked by, didn't they? Oh, yeah, the, the major journo boner for him, for her. <laughs> disgusting. Dulcie was found guilty and paid the fine. Now, although Dulcie was married to Frank Bowen, she appeared to be in an open relationship, starting trysts with Guido Coletti and another gangster by the name of Arthur Taplin. Hang on, isn't Guido married to her bestie Nellie Cameron? Yep. Marriage vows were more like a serving suggestion to Dulcie and Frank. While spending some sexy time down in Melbourne with Arthur Taplin, Dulcie used the awesome alias of Tosca DeMarca to stay off the police's radar. It didn't work. They went, that sounds like a fake name. She was soon rounded up and told to get the fuck out of Melbourne. Arthur, as with all of Dulcie's lovers, had some serious form. Well, she does have a type. She really does. He had been described in court as the worst class of criminal. He'd already had multiple stints at Long Bay, one five-year stretch for slashing a woman's face with a broken bottle. Look, call me a prude, but slashing a woman's face is always a romantic deal-breaker for me. Yeah, not cool, Arthur. Yeah, not cool. He'd also been charged with attempted murder, but managed to wriggle his way out of it. He's a wriggler. Mm, slippery sucker, eh? On December 15th, 1937, a spot of biffo broke out between Arthur Taplin and another gent named Harcourt Lee at the Cosmopolitan Hotel in Melbourne CBD. Harcourt, who was a hairdresser, would later tell police to pair fought over a beer. That's my beer! No, it's my beer! Oh, I distinctly remember paying for that and bringing it to the table. Yeah, well, I drank some of it and I spat in it, and so it's mine now. After a few punches were thrown, Harcourt produced a pistol and shot Taplin. Arthur Taplin was taken to the Royal Melbourne Hospital. When interviewed by police, he kept the underworld code of silence, refusing to name his attacker. A few days later, he succumbed to his wounds. The press got wind of Taplin's passing and his relationship with Dulcie. On December 26, the Truth newspaper in Brisbane published a story entitled Sensational Daylight Shooting and Killing of a Well-Known Sydney Underworld Character. 
followed by Police Hot on the Trail of Dulcie Markham, Australia's most beautiful bad woman and golden-haired adventurist. It went on to describe her as a femme fatale and a hoodoo girl. Hoodoo girl. But Dulcie, as you know, was back in Sydney, now in the arms of Guido Galletti. She was also back to her mischievous ways. In 1938, she was arrested on a number of occasions for offensive behaviour, indecent language and assaulting a police officer. Philandering bucket murderer. On August 6, 1939, while attending a house party in Woolloomooloo in Sydney, Guido Galletti was gunned down by a rival gang member. Dulcie was there, but she refused to talk to the police. I ain't telling you nothing about nothing. Guido's funeral was attended by thousands, some say the biggest Sydney had ever seen. 5,000 people filed by the coffin, according to Sydney's Truth newspaper. It was also reported that Dulcie threw herself over the coffin and wept for minutes. It appeared that the whole of Sydney mourned the passing of the great Guido Galletti. Well, yeah, not quite. Uh, the Smiths Weekly described Guido as a child delinquent, reformatory graduate, petty larcenist, garrotta, associate gunman who could have had a death unwept, unhonoured and unsung. Harsh. Yeah, but, and also but not fair. true. George Allen and Robert Branch were later arrested for the murder of Guido, but acquitted at the trial for lack of evidence. Uh, let me guess. Underworld Code of Silence? Exactly. Before the trial, Dulcie went into hiding. Actually, she talked of that time later to journalists at the Truth newspaper and said, He was a swell guy. I went to his funeral and then went into smoke. Smoke? She went bush. She went to Lithgow, which is about 100 miles out of Sydney. The only reason we know this is because she was arrested there. Of course. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, she was drunk and rained down a torrent of abuse at the arresting police officers. They got upset and sent her back to Sydney. Shortly thereafter, she was arrested for theft and sentenced to one month in Long Bay Jail. Oh, how you going there, Brucey love? Good day, Dulcie. You're looking nice. You're looking very pretty. <laughs> I know. By now, Australia was at war. And what is war good for? Absolutely nothing. No, business. Especially, you know, sexy business. Dulcie managed to align herself with some bigger players in Melbourne, namely a Frederick James Anderson who went by the nickname of Paddles. Paddles? Yes, because of his enormous... Cock? Feet. <laughs> that makes more sense. <laughs> Paddles does sound like a rodeo clown, though. It does. And they have enormous... Cocks? Feet! <laughs> Up! <laughs> <laughs> Dulcie and Paddles got real close. How close? They were lovers. Hey, baby! Twas not to last. Twasn't? No, I'm afraid not. On June 15th, 1940, Paddles shot rival John Abrahams outside a house in Collingwood. See, Paddles had been playing cards with Abrahams the night before in Brunswick, where they'd argued. It appeared that Paddles had given John Abrahams his comeuppance. Paddles could also be like a really good-natured black Labrador. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Come here, Paddles. Come on. Paddles likes Paddles. Nom, 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 nom. You want to play cards, Paddles? No. <laughs> All dogs like playing cards. Oh. Poker's their favourite game. Oh, they also right. play pool. I've seen the painting. Yeah, it's a, actually it's, I mean, historical. It's, a, it's historical. It's, it's, it's based on a photo. It's a photo. It's a movie. <laughs> it's a documentary. Shot in real time. That's right. Paddles was arrested. At a July inquest into the murder, Paddles was committed for trial. Bad Paddles. 
Dulcie attended the trial looking as glamorous as ever. She told reporters she didn't like that she had become known as the hoodoo girl because of all the men that had died around her. She also declared her love for paddles, saying they wanted to get a cottage in the suburbs and settle down. Everything was going well until the other day when he was arrested. When this is over, I'm going to divorce my husband and marry Paddles. Yeah, that's what she told Melbourne's Argus newspaper. Oh, she's a, she's a really paddles She's got it bad for Paddles. Oh, yeah. Paddles. Woo! Ride me harder, Paddles. <laughs> <laughs> Fred Paddles Anderson was found not guilty of the murder of John Abrahams. According to Chow Hayes, who was a mate of Paddles, everyone knew that he did it. He freely admitted it to his mates, Chow said. Dulcie did not need to apply for a divorce from Frank Bowen. Frank died in a wild brawl and gunfight in King's Cross later that year. Dulcie and Paddles never did get married either and split the following year. Paddles returned to Sydney and began working for Lenny McPherson. Who we covered in episode 69. Yes, that was a special we did with Cambo from True Crime Island. I'm pretty sure we made him giggle because we made him say rambunctious. So as much as Dulcie hated being called an angel of death and a hoodoo girl, by 1940 she had lost three lovers and a husband to underworld violence. And there's more to come. Tune in next episode for the conclusion of Angel of Death, Dulcie Markham. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. New year, new you, right, Barney? Hmm, not so much. Yeah, so far 2021 has told 2020, hold my beer and then just like run roaring into the crowd, hasn't it? <laughs> it has. <laughs> I'm wondering if last year even ended or if today is actually December 55th. Is everything going on in the world at the moment having a negative impact on your mental health? Are these unprecedented circumstances stopping you from achieving your goals? Or perhaps all of this is just making other stuff that you've had to deal with even harder. Do you want to make changes in your life but you're not sure where to even start? Barney and I are both big believers in therapy and there's no better time than now to take care of your mental health. BetterHelp is there for you no matter where you are. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's professional counselling that produces real results, not self-help. And you can be communicating with your counsellor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. All without having to leave your house. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. 
It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. And it's a service you can access worldwide. You can be communicating with licensed professional counsellors who have a broad range of expertise and specialise in areas such as self-esteem, LGBTQIA matters, family conflicts, stress and depression. Anything you share is confidential. It's convenient, professional and very affordable. If you want to start living a happier life today, connect with BetterHelp. And as a Bloody Murder listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they've been recruiting additional counsellors in all states of the USA. Get matched with a counsellor that suits you by simply filling out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs. If you don't believe us, feel free to check out their tons of positive testimonials on their website. So visit betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. That's betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. All right, Barney. You want to tell me what time it is? It's True Crime Nerd time. <laughs> hey! True Crime Nerd time. True Crime Nerd time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true or fiction crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, maybe even an interview with your favourite true crime author, or just about anything that has scratched your crime-obsessed itch. Are you itchy? You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. And we have one here from a long-time listener, obscene stalker, filthy jorts collector and foul-mouthed bog witch, Tara Sarabin. Oh, you've been reading my CV, I see. I have. Take it away, Tara. Thanks, Barney. Bad Medicine, Catching New York's Deadliest Pill Pusher by former Manhattan Assistant District Attorney Charlotte Bismuth is becoming one of the most talked-about new books on the opioid crisis. From 2010 to 2014, Bismuth and her team followed a trail of bodies and money to Dr. Stan Lee, who was selling prescriptions for controlled substances out of a basement clinic in Flushing, Queens. Dr. Lee betrayed the trust of his patients and society and was justly convicted of reckless manslaughter, reckless endangerment and other crimes. He was also profiting from a scourge set off by Purdue Pharma and other drug manufacturers who pumped millions of pills into the market and hundreds of thousands of dollars into misleading marketing. The book Bad Medicine tells the story of the opioid epidemic through the investigation and trial of one doctor who embodied the callousness and greed of the pharmaceutical companies. I'm talking today to the author of the book, former Manhattan Assistant District Attorney Charlotte Bismuth. Thanks for joining us, Charlotte. How are you going? Thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be speaking to your continent. <laughs> Thank you. So the opioid crisis in the USA has been growing worse in the past several years. Uh, can you give us some history on this issue? Absolutely. Um, you are absolutely right to say that it was launched by Purdue Pharma. In uh, the 1990s, they issued a new product called OxyContin, and they were able to obtain permission to market that product, not just for end-of-life pain or severe cancer pain, but um, for a wider range of pain. And they also engaged in a false marketing campaign that led doctors to over-prescribe the medication not just because they thought it would help their patients, but because it would also get them uh, financial and other benefits from Purdue Pharma. 
So they launched an epidemic really of greed where national distributors of pills and then pharmacies and doctors themselves were pumping out uh, millions of pills, as you say, into America's small towns, big towns, I mean, really everywhere and reaching even, uh, you know, young kids who were digging into their parents' uh, medicine cabinets and uh, older patients who were seeking relief from legitimate and real chronic pain. So this has been going on for a long time. Purdue Pharma, uh, got a slap on the wrist in 2007, but they didn't stop and they continued committing their crimes even after that. We have seen the deaths go from a few thousand deaths a year attributable mostly to prescription pills to now, I believe this year we are on track to see more than 70,000 deaths, which is absolutely shocking and devastating. Um, if you think about, you know, that could represent the population of a small city. It could represent, you know, I think it's definitely more than the Vietnam War in terms of casualties. And um, we've become numb to it in a way. So it's sort of a double tragedy where you've had this epidemic grow year by year, and then you've had the public become accustomed to it. Wow, that is outrageous. Would you like to tell us how this case first came to your attention? So in 2010, I was an assistant district attorney in the office of the Special Narcotics Prosecutor, which is a specialized offshoot of um, New York City district attorney's offices, where they focus only on felony narcotics crimes. So the, those are the high level narcotics crimes. And uh, at the time, you know, the opioid epidemic had been raging for some time. But to be honest, I like many other Americans and people around the world, uh, did not have my eyes open to that. I thought about criminality, you know, obviously I understood white collar criminality, but I thought about criminality in a very different way. And um, I was at the office late one night, I received a uh, little note from my boss. On that note was the name of a detective, the name of a doctor and a phone number. Uh, it turned out that we, the NYPD had received a complaint about a doctor who was selling prescriptions to kids and that's all we had. So my first reaction was, well, is this even a case? Doctors prescribe medication, that is what they do. And there are doctors called pediatricians who prescribe to children. So, um, you know, it wasn't very clear to us why this call was coming in to our office and why we should handle it rather than the medical oversight agency through many twists and turns over the next couple of weeks, I finally realized that this doctor was a pain management physician who worked only on the weekends, who was distributing prescriptions, roughly the same combination to every patient, which, you know, even to a non-physician like me is really bizarre. He was uh, prescribing mostly oxycodone combined with Xanax. He was prescribing them in significant quantities at significant strengths and dosages. And that combination itself is really uh, concerning because they are both respiratory depressants. The way that they've been described is that they, um, they augment each other's effects. So one plus one doesn't equal two, it equals three. So it was 
you know, bizarre to see these sort of patterns emerging in his prescriptions. And then we started hearing about the deaths. Uh, and it very quickly became apparent to us that there was a public health emergency, but we were still grappling with the question of, were we the right office to take this on? Why weren't the other doctors doing anything? Why was the DEA allowing him to continue selling controlled substances? How was it possible that you had a, you know, a physician who had a very well-paying job during the week who was you know, having people wait in the street in the morning for his doors to open and then pour into the building and, you know, come out and just either sell their pills right there on the street or go home and overdose. I mean, it was, it was astounding, not just the criminal behavior itself, but the blindness of all of us and the fact that this was happening under our very eyes and that, you know, families trust doctors, society trusts doctors. He was flagrantly betraying every trust and he was killing people. So Dr. Lee was seeing up to 100 patients a day uh, on the weekends at his pain clinic. Uh, he wasn't doing diagnostic work or asking questions or even confirming that the patients, um, what they told him about their conditions were even true with medical records or anything. Uh, how do you think it was possible for him to get away with it for so long? You kind of touched on that a moment ago, but I'm just curious. It's a very good question. He played a sort of theater. And I think that he knew that as long as certain elements were in place, that he would escape suspicion. Um, so, you know, again, he was a very well-respected physician with great credentials. He had a job in a teaching hospital in New Jersey that paid him several hundred thousand dollars a year. There were no complaints against him there. He opened a clinic that was a pain management clinic. He was board certified in pain management. So he was allowed to do this. He had a DEA license to uh, prescribed controlled substances. And um, in the US, there's also a special license that you need to prescribe medications that treat opioid use disorder. He had that as well. So this was a man who was very well-versed, very well-educated, very well-respected. And he took advantage of that because um, the, D, the DEA actually sent agents to see him in November 2009, and he was able to tell them, you know, absolutely not. Of course, I always conduct full physical exams and, you know, I'm extremely careful and I discharge any patients who are, uh, you know, gaming the system by seeing multiple doctors and they believed him. Um, he did the same thing with the professional oversight board. In fact, we discovered and uh, surfaced the fact that he had falsified medical records. So you had this man who was just a crass criminal, but he operated under this societal illusion of legitimacy. He had the, sh the medical shingle, he had the license, the credentials, he had the white coat, he had the secretaries out in the front, but here's what was completely different about it. When you went to this medical office, you didn't have an appointment, you got a numbered ticket and you had better get there very early in the morning because there would be a line of people and they did not like it when others cut in front of them. Um, you would get a, a numbered ticket, you would wait your turn, you'd be called not by your name, but by your number. And as the patients described it to us, once you were in his office, the visit took just as long as needed for him to say, what do you want? To say the prescriptions that you wanted, for him to write them out, 
and to give him the cash. And that white coat served two purposes. It gave him, you know, the allure of a physician and it had pockets. So one theme that we heard at trial over and over again, we would ask the patients and victims, what did he do with the money? And they said he would put it in the pocket of his white coat. So how did he escape detection? Because society trusts doctors, because we entrust them with the health and well-being of our children and our elders and our own lives. And uh, when people think of drug dealers, they don't think of pharmaceutical companies and physicians, but that's where the true crime has been all this time. Dr. Lee was found guilty of two counts of manslaughter after his patients, Joseph Haig and Nicholas Rapold, died of overdoses caused by a combination of oxycodone and Xanax on December 29th, 2009 and September 14th, 2010, respectively. What can you tell us about 37-year-old Joseph Haig's history with Dr. Lee and his subsequent death? I would say the same thing that I would say about all the other patients is that going through those medical records was like watching a train wreck in slow motion. And, uh, you know, we even found records from Dr. Lee's office, these sort of handwritten ledgers where every day that he was open, they would write down the name of every patient who had been there, the number on that patient's ticket and how much cash they had given the doctor. And there were a couple of days where we would see Joseph Hicks' name and Nicholas Rappold's name and the names of all the other victims that we were fighting for during that trial. And looking at these ledgers, you would think, you know what, that day they were all still alive. They weren't okay, but they were alive. And if only you could reach back and intervene at that point. Uh, Joseph Haig was a young man who had struggled for a long time with addiction. His family felt that they hadn't done enough. They hadn't done the right thing. They didn't know how to help. They didn't know how to stop. But when he said that he didn't use illegal drugs, they were relieved. When he said that he was seeing a doctor, they were relieved. Um, it's just that they were no match for that prescription pad and uh, the greed on the other end. He was actually found dead on the 29th. His um, body was in a state of decomposition at the time. So we believe that he died a few days earlier. And in fact, his last visit to Dr. Lee had taken place on December 26th, if I'm remembering correctly. So that was one of the reasons why we decided that we could charge the crime as a homicide was that we had a very tight nexus between the visits, the issuance of the prescriptions, and his time of death. It was clear that he had gone in. Um, it was clear from his history that Dr. Lee knew that he was in very, very bad shape. And it was clear that he had ingested the medication very, very quickly after he'd seen the doctor. Same thing with Nicholas Rappold, who was 21 at the time of his death. Um, he was found dead on September 14th. It was I believe 11 in the morning, he had died during the night. His last visit to Dr. Lee was on September 11th. So again, you're seeing these two young men who go to see a doctor one day and within three days, they are found dead. They were found dead in quite harrowing circumstances as well. Um, I understand that Joe was found by his mother after he failed to show up to a Christmas party where he was gonna play Santa and, and give out gifts. And uh, Nicholas died alone in his car 
And um, he was actually slumped over and there was a parking ticket on his car for being illegally parked while he was, well, dead inside it. I mean, that, that's just heartbreaking stuff. He is. And, you know, the um, his mother, as it was described to us in a trial by the police officer, had this sort of, um, you know, she was devastated, but she was a woman who, you know, managed to keep it all together for the moment. Uh, she died just before the trial. She wasn't able to testify. And, you know, it, it really, it really cut her to the core, obviously. But um, for the fascinating thing was that these weren't crimes at the time. You know, in Joe Haig's case, they treated the scene like a homicide until they realized that it was most likely an overdose. Luckily for us, they preserved the evidence. But, you know, there, there's this um, line between an accidental death and an overdose that can really make the difference in terms of the handling, whether you can prosecute it or not. And in, you know, Nicholas Rappold's case, it was really, really it was tough because um, overdoses were really not considered to be crimes. So in terms of the process of getting them recognized as crimes, how did you manage to do that? We believed that these lives had been cut short. We came to know these victims as human beings. I think, you know, a lot of people also write off people who are addicted to drugs and especially opioids and, uh, you know, we met their families. And just like you said, you know, for me, the idea of this 21 year old man dying alone in his car. And, of you know, I've been a New Yorker for a long, long time. But still, the parking ticket. I mean, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> uh, you issue a parking ticket, you don't even look through the window. Like, I'm, it would be a lie to say that I was surprised by that, but there's a callousness and a sort of invisibility to this life disappearing that, um, you know, when we started connecting the dots, we, we just couldn't let it go. We couldn't. And then, of course, there was the killing in Medford on Father's Day in uh, 2011. And, you know, Dr. Lee was doing much more, unfortunately, than it contributing directly to the death of his patients, he was inciting other people to commit acts of unspeakable horror. You know, on, on, on that day, a young man who had been a patient of Dr. Lee's who had grown addicted to hydrocodone, which is another opioid, um, as a result of Dr. Lee's prescriptions, went into a pharmacy in Medford, Long Island. There were four people in the pharmacy, two working behind the counter, including a young woman, um, a teenager and two customers, and he shot them all in cold blood and then made off with 11,000 pills. And, you know, that was the legacy of Dr. Lee. Yeah, because he, um, Dr. Lee wasn't held accountable in any way for um, that massacre. However, he did face charges for prescribing to, um, to the murder in this case, um, which was uh, David Laffer. Um, his wife, um, his wife, Melinda Brady, was also a patient of Dr. Lee's, wasn't she? Uh, she was waiting in the car while he went in and robbed the pharmacy. Uh, I understand that she faced uh, charges as well. Um, Laffer got put away for life and his wife, Melinda, was sentenced to 25 years, I believe. Um, so this is kind of a trail of destruction that isn't immediately linked to Dr. Lee, but is certainly part of the legacy that he's left. 
It is. And, you know, there's this concept in American law called the chain of causation and it complicated, you know, history and, um, but it's, it's an image that for me really, really resonated with the Lee trial because, and with the Lee case, not only were there these chains that linked Dr. Lee to these deaths, but they linked him to families where the damage of the loss and the hurt and the addiction, you know, had all these other consequences. And they linked him also to these murders, to, you know, these four murders in that pharmacy and to the sort of reverberations from that that occurred. So, um, you know, in every instance, what we would do is we, we needed to find the links in the chain. We needed to expose them. And we were absolutely determined to capture as much of his criminal conduct as we could because, you know, there, there are uh, schools of thought that say that you should only charge a couple of crimes, maybe the most significant. But for us, we felt like it was important to show the jury and the world that this physician who benefited from a privileged status and from, um, you know, the uh, sort of the um, assumption of righteousness was not just a liar in that he falsified records, was not just a thief in that he stole money from insurance companies and his own patients, but that he was also depravedly indifferent to human life and that he had recklessly caused the death of two human beings. And we needed to expose all of that. Unfortunately, the civil system in the US has you know, different standards and it was simply, it was very, very, well, let me, unfortunately you're right that he was not able to be held accountable for David Laffer's murders. And you know, the, the fact of the matter is that David Laffer and Melinda Brady were responsible and they committed a heinous crime. Um, Dr. Lee, however, in our view, absolutely was part of a chain of destruction. Now the question and the challenge for me and for the people that I'm working with now is what are the links in the chain that connect doctors like Stan Lee to Purdue Pharma and to members of the Sackler family who have lived on the wealth that they accumulated through, you know, the really the destruction of so many lives in the United States. So that's where the fight is now. So you're continuing working in this area? I am. I'm no longer a practicing attorney. I am now working with activists. So I work with the photographer Nan Golden, who has been a very outspoken and courageous activist against Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers. I work with a group also of um, parents who have lost their children to overdoses. We actually all came together with the goal of getting involved in the Purdue bankruptcy proceeding because we feel that that's just another way for them to hide and to get away, you know, with all of their money intact. So uh, we're working together now. We're working on raising public awareness. We're working on making it hard for the Sacklers to keep their money and dodge accountability. Uh, it's very different for me because I'm, you know, as a prosecutor, I'm a very action oriented. I really believe in justice. I, uh, you know, also will not let go if something wrong has occurred and I want to see it through. And the fact is that here we're dealing with a very different kettle of fish. It's, um, a company and a family that have really, uh, been able to 
preserve their own reputation and safety in a manner that I think displays an incredible inequity in the judicial system. And it's very hard to break through that. It's fantastic that you're, you're very much putting your time and energy into trying to, though, and working on that. So I'm glad to hear that. Now, in bad medicine, it's very clear how much empathy you have for the victims and their families. It, it comes through very strongly in your writing. Would you say this is one of the most difficult cases you've worked on? It was absolutely the most difficult one. Um, I was at the DA's office for seven years. In the beginning, I was in the appeals bureau where I defended convictions. Many of those cases were sexual assaults. Those were very, very difficult. However, what was different about the Dr. Lee case was that the victims were disregarded in the sense that, again, nobody assumed that they could be crime victims because they suffered from addiction because they weren't, you know, quote unquote, perfect people. And uh, it really hurt. It really hurt to meet their parents and their siblings and to hear that there were families who were, you know, losing sleep over the guilt of not having been able to help their loved one when the fault lay elsewhere. And that fault was discoverable, but it just hadn't been done. You know, nobody had gone after it. And, um, also sort of on a logistical, you know, practical level, it was, it was obsessive work in the sense that there was so much. He had, he had over a thousand patients. We seized all of those records. We went through every one of those records with a fine tooth comb. We then branched out to get medical records to make, do interviews. So I would be doing a lot of the sort of research subpoena work, um, you know, reviewing records, building evidence, sort of, uh, you know, trying to figure out what, how we could build the charges. And meanwhile, while my investigative team was really out in the field, literally knocking on doors, showing up at people's houses and saying, you know, I think you were a patient of Dr. Lee, would you be willing to speak to us? We also tried to get, you know, we tried to get an undercover in there, um, which uh, was, very challenging again because of that theater that you can play of having a you know a legitimate doctor and you know patients going in and saying they're in pain and it's it's all a fallacy but the regular rules and techniques just didn't apply so it was a, just a you know a puzzle on every level on the emotional level on the legal level on the practical level on the strategic sort of tactical level and I, you know, at the end of the four years when he was finally sentenced, um, I felt, you know, it, there was closure and there was emptiness just because um, I had been living, I had been living with it, you know, and luckily I've still maintained connections to the, the humans um, and that's, you know, more meaningful than anything. But uh, I, I felt like that case was a lifetime in itself. It sounds like it, it's changed your direction in terms of your career as well. Would, would that be correct? Absolutely. In, in so many ways, I think, you know, thinking about the, um, like, what does it mean to be a doctor or to be a lawyer or to have this sort of status? How much does status really matter? Mm -hmm how can I actually make a difference? 
how do I want to spend the years of my life? You know, how do I want to talk to my children about, you know, what's, what's going on in the world? Um, and also, you know, having gone through a divorce, I, um, my time with my kids was precious. It was, you know, a little bit broken up. So I really had a lot of thinking to do about whether I could continue at the pace that I was going, which was really a breakneck pace. Um, and, you know, things that mattered to me before didn't matter to me anymore. I, um, I'd always wanted to write a book. I never intended my book to be about my work. Um, this, you know, I think as the, as I saw the death toll rising and I saw that all of these deaths were just statistics, it just began hurting again, where I thought, you know, I, I feel like we need to tell the story of each of those sort of isolated data points. And we need to tell the story of the people who are coming together to fight back because it's not who you would expect. The teams bring together, you know, people who you would assume wouldn't be able to work together, police officers and, you know, uh, people who are suffering from addiction, um, mothers who've lost their kids and, you know, uh, lifetime Medicare experts. I mean, you name it, we had the most unlikely combinations of people who made justice happen in this case. And especially now, given, you know, sort of the, the divide in American society, the partisanship, the just the staggering deaths that we've seen as a result of the combined pandemic and opioid epidemic, I think we all need a reminder and a, you know, um, sort of a call to action to say, we just have to do the right thing, you know, on any level that we can. In 2014, 60 year old Dr. Lee was found guilty of two counts of second degree manslaughter, six counts of recklessly endangering the lives of six other patients, and 180 counts of selling prescriptions for controlled substances, and sentenced to 10 to 20 years prison. Um, what did the victims' families think about this? Did they feel that justice had been served in this case? They did. They found it very difficult that Dr. Lee did not admit responsibility or express remorse. It was actually a shocking moment in the courtroom when at his sentencing, um, before the judge issued the sentence, Dr. Lee spoke. And I think we all hoped and expected that there would be some, some sincere or, you know, detailed or uh, honest, expression of understanding of what had happened or sympathy. And there really wasn't. And, you know, he, uh, he just repeated sort of in a very rote manner, the defenses that he had raised at trial that they lied to him. He was the victim. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry, that's a, uh, the sound that you hear in the background is my puppy. <laughs> puppy! <laughs> very neglected right now, but he's fine. Um, so <laughs> you got a vocal one there. <laughs> I'm sorry, I forget. I, I forgot what I was saying. Oh, that's all right. Um, what I was going to, um, this is actually going to tie in. At his sentencing, Dr. Lee said, I did not create this problem. The problem already existed. So it was that kind of his line throughout the whole thing? It was. He also went further than that and he stole a couple of 
other lines from the Purdue and Sackler playbook, which were to say, you know, the problem wasn't me, it was the addicts, the bad people, the liars, the people who abuse the system. And that was really despicable because the fact is that this is a medication that launches such a powerful addiction that, you know, a person's character or inner strength or goodness has nothing to do with it. It just, it's like a tsunami wave of craving and withdrawal. You can't fight it. It's incredibly, incredibly hard. So, um, you know, Dr. Lee uh, really played into that and hoped and expected that the jury would buy what the American public and you know the FDA essentially had bought over decades, which was, um, you know, the doctors are not the problem. The drug is not the problem. The problem is that people are using it in a way that wasn't prescribed. You said in the book that Dr. Lee knew that a lot of his patients were doctor shopping and that they were getting the same drugs that he was giving them from other doctors though. So I'm, I'm just wondering how he can stand there and claim that it's their fault when he knew they were doing it and he still sold them drugs for the cash that he put in his pocket. Well, what you just said is what I would come home and say to my kids or anybody else who would listen to me every night for four years and especially for you know four months of trial when we finally had, had an opportunity to hear his defense. Um, it's astounding. It's astounding. It really is. You know, and the fact is that he didn't just know about it. He monetized it. So at the time, it wasn't required for physicians in New York State to check whether their patients were receiving prescriptions from other doctors. But he chose to have access to that database. And what he would do is he would look up his patients. He would see that they had seen other doctors and he would charge them an extra $50. Oh, my God. And if he received a letter of warning from the state saying that a patient had been hospitalized for suicidal ideation or for alcohol withdrawal or for opioid withdrawal, guess what he would do? He would charge them extra for that. So um, he is directly profiting from the issues that they're having in so many ways. It's mind blowing. So Dr. Lee actually died in prison of COVID-19 at the age of 66 on April 26, 2020. Did he ever take responsibility for his actions at all? Not that I'm aware. And, you know, I do really, really want to say that justice was served when he was convicted and sentenced. Nothing is served by allowing human beings who are in the care and custody of the government to die in prison of an uncontrolled infection. I was stunned to hear of his death, especially because I heard of it, uh, I think just two weeks ago. Um, all the members of the team and the victim's families had roughly the same reaction, which is nobody deserves to die a lonely, painful and frightening death. And while there's really no excuse for what he did, um, you know, it's, it's terribly sad. And I, uh, you know, I really feel for his family. But as far as I know, there was no, uh, there was no change of heart with respect to the case. When is Bad Medicine released? And where can our listeners get a copy? Bad Medicine is coming out January 19th. Um, you can buy in the US through IndieBound or um, 
your local bookstore. I think worldwide it will be on Amazon and other uh, websites. It's very important for me to let potential readers know that I am donating a portion of my proceeds from the book to an incredible organization called Fed Up. It is a coalition of groups that were founded mostly by parents who lost their children to overdoses and who all came together with the goal of bringing an end to the opioid epidemic and making sure that it never happens again. So that is an uphill battle and I'm very proud to support them. And I am grateful in advance to any readers who are willing to help with that. That is brilliant. I've been chatting with Charlotte Bismuth, who is the author of Bad Medicine, Catching New York's Deadliest Pill Pusher, which will be out in January. So keep your eyes out for that one. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Charlotte. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, again, you know, my puppy in the background is (laughs) a bit lonely, so I'm going to go back to cuddle him, but he's fine. I don't want your listeners to be concerned about it. Oh, no. It sounds like he's uh, he's just having a, a rollicking good time. Yes, with his new toys. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. And um, I love your podcast and I look forward to speaking to you again. That would be fantastic. Thank you. Thanks, Tara. That book is called Bad Medicine, Catching New York's Deadliest Pill Pusher by Charlotte Bismuth, the details of which will be in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to submit to True Crime Nerd Time, just email us at bloodymurderpodcast at gmail.com. Hey, Tara, I have a question for you. Yes, Barney? What is Aussie as? Hang on a minute. You did it last last episode, so surely you know by now, right? No, it never happened. You don't know? You don't have any idea what the I segment don't know. is? You, no clue? Could no. you take a guess? I don't know. It's you fighting the alphabet. Oh, well, I mean, maybe if you play your cards right, I'll give it a burl <laughs> on your birthday. Like those dogs in the painting. <laughs> No, Aussie as are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? Yes, I would. Well, this one has uh, criminal stupidity and bloody legends in the same story. And I'd like to thank Horace Fluffball, Deanne Grinter and Chris Yentl for suggesting that I cover this one. Rambunctious mates Cam and Kevo were drinking beers and laying crab traps in a tinny on a river in East Point, just north of Darwin and the NT on January 3rd this year. Their boozing and crab hunting were rudely interrupted when they heard someone yelling to them from the mangroves. Cam told Nine News, Oh yeah, we heard this faint like, ah, ah, and I said to my mate, is that guy saying help? So we got a bit closer. When they drove their tinny toward the sound, they happened upon a mud-caked, butt-naked man covered in mozzie bites clinging to the branches of a low-hanging tree. Unsure what to make of this situation, they asked him what the bloody hell he was doing. They were none the wiser after he replied, I've been eating snails. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I can't 100% confirm that that's what the man sounded like, but he did in fact say, I've been eating snails. I have been eating snails. Oh, no. After probably watching the mates exchange quizzical looks, the man went on to tell them that he was stuck in the crocodile-infested swamp because he'd gotten lost on his way to a New Year's Eve party. Cam told Nine News, Oh, we thought he was having us on, taking the piss. And then we went closer and realised he'd done himself a mischief. And we were like, oh, guess we better help him. He was completely naked, cuts all over him, swollen feet, covered in mud. 
Kevin Kevo said the man was bloody keen to get out of there and happily accepted the offer of a cold beer from the pair as he clambered aboard their boat. Feeling just a tad awkward with such up-close-and-personal naked man tackle, generous Cam offered the man his shorts. Were they jorts? Yeah, nah, afraid not. Kevo told Nine News... I wasn't wearing any undies, so I couldn't give him mine. (laughs) The duo brought the now semi-naked man back to town and called him an ambulance. As he was being taken away to hospital, they exchanged fond farewells and vowed to keep in touch. Cam and Kevo were beyond surprised when they found out that the man, 40-year-old Luke Voskresensky, was a fugitive wanted on an arrest warrant for allegedly breaching bail over an armed robbery. He'd slipped out of his ankle monitor and gone bush four days earlier. In that time, he'd somehow managed to lose all of his clothes and eaten quite a few snails. Yum! <laughs> Cam said, oh, I was going to go visit him in the hospital. And my partner's a paramedic saying, look, he's in hospital with handcuffs on. Two big cops babysitting him. So we were like, oh, yeah, well, uh, maybe we'll leave it, eh? Come back, fellas. Did you bring any snails? <laughs> Oh, you'll be right, mate. We're a bit busy now, eh? Snails, yum! (laughs) Yum! Yum! Mm. This brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us some good reviews. So thank you to Nappy Dresser from the United States. Square is top of cool from the United States. Lilu Dallas 07, again from the USA. And Hallie, all nicknames taken from the USA. <laughs> We'd also like to thank the wonderful, the sublime, the graceful and intelligent Lorraine for all the hard work she does running the Facebook group with me. And for being my favourite Lorraine in the whole of Wales. <laughs> you know who else is awesome? Our patrons. We love them. We love them so much we've been holding monthly giveaways. Our January prize is a very special one, Tara. A Bloody Murder Tritone Duffel Bag. Lug your stuff around in this bed, boy. Chopper guards your shit in mesh side pocket. It also features an inner zip pocket and a removable shoulder strap. Perfect for travel, the gym, vodka, school and your commute. Great for large amounts of cash and weapons. For a chance to win and to be as cool as Russian Tara, be a Bloody Murder patron at a level of $5 or above. Now, we've had some new bloody legends join our Patreon program, so thank you to Nicole Anderson, Sarah Timmons, Laurie Checkley, Cara Hodges, Kerry Morgan, and Danielle McDougall. We'd also like to thank Nancy Lackey and Stephanie Miner for upping their pledges. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Definitely a lot. If you would like to support us, visit our website, or if you just want to buy us a drink, because it's my thirsty voice, there's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Sarabin. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts, our IMDb listing, or our Facebook page. You don't need to write a well-crafted essay, just five stars and a hey baby would still count. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us eat all the delicious crunchy snails. Yum. I love the slimy texture of snails. Follow us through (laughs) our Facebook page or join our Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod. And at Instagram, we're Bloody underscore. And on Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, BloodyMurderPodcast.com, for news galleries, more episodes and links to our threadless merchandise. (laughs) Thanks for sticking around. And we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. 
I was going for a walk yesterday morning and as is usual, I was dressed like someone that you would try to avoid at a train station. You know, like dodgy, ill-fitting tracky dacks and an old t-shirt. Resting bitch outfit. Resting, resting bitch outfit. Yeah. And you know, like worn out runners. And I was walking down the street and this woman in, in fancy, expensive, purple matching exercise gear with gym-honed arms and makeup on, she was in her 50s, I'd say, and she had her hair in a braid, so she was very well put together. I was walking past a cafe and she approaches me and goes, buy me a coffee. And I went, oh, I don't have any, any cash or anything with me because I'm just going for a walk. And she went, ah, oh, just going for a walk, just going for a walk. And I started walking off because, you know, if you're not enjoying the interaction, like, best not do anything to make it go longer. And she kept doing it as I kept walking, like, going for a walk. And I was thinking of turning around and being like, what the fuck, lady? Like, go to the gym again and maybe buy your own damn coffee. You look like you got a lot more money than I do. Uh, but then I had this, this flash of like, oh, considering her height, if she got even feistier, she might be able to like punch me in the tit before I had a chance to defend myself. So I thought better of, of you know, following it up. But it was weird to be ridiculed by a well-dressed gym lady for not buying her a coffee. Also, I've never seen her before in my life. Mm, that's odd. She's not a friend. Buy me a coffee. Uh, I can't. I'm podcasting. Oh, you're doing a podcast, are you? I'm doing a podcast. I'm just doing a podcast. <laughs> it was really weird. <laughs> I mean, I'm used to weirdness in my neighbourhood because it's, um, well, it's, I don't mean to brag, but it is one of the biggest heroin suburbs in Melbourne. Um, well, that's I, why you live there. Yeah, well, clearly I would like to be heroin adjacent. Um, another woman asked me for money the other day, and again, I didn't have anything on me because I was just going for a walk. And instead she started yelling to the whole street about, like, everybody gives it up at me. Um, and I also had a guy recently who asked me for money, and I said, oh, I don't have any cash. And he went, well, go to the ATM and get some out for me then. Honestly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's, it's like everyone wants to steal your lunch money in my neighbourhood. I was in Canberra once, and uh, we were next to the merry-go-round. The kids were going on the merry-go-round, and this guy came up to me and said, can I have some money? And I said, oh, God, sorry, I don't have any cash. He said, there's an ATM right there. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, but I, nothing in my account. And he went, well, how are you paying for the thing? And I said, well, just no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're we telling a fib, were you? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, maybe if you were dressed in a Prada suit and looking like you were made of money or something, I might understand it. But but when you when you actually appear to have less money than the person accosting you for money, it's just a really yeah. weird vibe. You know what a homeless bum looks like dressed in a Prada suit? That's pretty much what I look like in a Prada suit. Yeah, but you yeah. don't have a Prada suit. I don't. I don't even have that. <laughs> <laughs> so how would you know? I'm just imagining. Yeah. That's all I can do these days. So, yeah, I'm getting, getting ridiculed by people <laughs> because I don't have money on me. That's the no. new thing. Also, I was thinking maybe I could start working 60-hour weeks just so I can afford to support all the strangers in my neighbourhood. <laughs> well, you could get charged with vagrancy just walking with no money. Um, no means well, of support. Well, yeah, citizens yeah. arrest, citizens arrest. Are Let's you married? Are you married? Does your <laughs> husband have a job? I'm not married. I'm living in sin and he does have a job. Really? Yes, a good one. Oh, well, there you go. They pay him the big bucks. Well, you'd have to prove it, of course. How? You'd have to ring him and get him to come down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he'd have to, like, vouch for me. Yeah, that's right. We found this stray woman on the streets. Uh, she didn't have any yeah. uh, money on her, so we figured we better see if she's got a, some man to release her to.
She's a bit tall. It's a bit concerning. Mm, she is a little bit too tall. We don't mm. like that. She makes us feel no, weird because she's right. taller than us. She's tall. Yeah. Although the woman that reported her wanted to punch her in the boob. We would kind of wish that no. had happened. It, it would be pretty funny for those around me if they if someone punched me in the boob. Maybe it's two women in a trench coat. Oh, they could punch me in both boobs at the same time. Oh, that's me. Oh, I'm oh. the two women in the trench coat punching yeah, myself in two the boobs. Christina Rickies in a, <laughs> in a trench coat. Punching myself in the titties. What uh, about you? You got any stories? No, I got nothing. Do you think people think I'm horrible because I said like I didn't give money to someone who nah, looked kind of rich? Experiences that we're not rich. I know we're not. No, what podcasting millionaires? Well, yeah, which means we're very poor. <laughs> Because we get paid in bollers. We're we baller get, millionaires. And we've invested it in Barney shitcoin. Yeah, all of it. I don't all know if it. that was a good idea. I don't know. It still might go up. I'm also pretty sure I didn't sign anything. Did you forge uh, my signature again? I, I, of course. You just put an X, didn't you? A little I chicken have, scratch. I actually have it on file. Yeah, exactly. You forge it all over town. I have. Oh, my God. I wonder what you've signed me up for. This is actually a bit frightening. Yeah. You really should use that gym membership, by the way. Well, I might bump into the woman who insisted I buy her a coffee if I do. Well, yeah. And she'll punch me in the boob. Oh, she does go there. She certainly went to some gym. She looked really fit. Uh, that's I can't ha- afford to go to the gym. No. Also, I'm lazy. Well, she spends all her money on gym. That's why she can't afford coffee. <laughs> I, was, I was supposed to go to a cafe with her, I guess. Yeah. That would have been nice. <laughs> Got to hang out. Told her about your life. Shared a moment. <laughs> she probably would have punched me in the boob anyway. Yeah, shit story, Tara. Oh, she had boob puncher written all over, I've got to say. Yeah, really? Well, you know, most people, I don't kind of, it doesn't flash into my mind that someone might punch me in the boob before I grab their head and hold them and they just swing their arms and they can't reach me anymore. I thought uh, she yeah, might yeah, be yeah. lightning quick and get one in just before I, like, pushed her head away and she ah, 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 and uh, she can't reach me because she's a T-Rex and I'm tall. You are tall. Yeah, yeah, I am. Tall, More than a little bit. Tall glass of water. Oh, you're a tall drink of water? Oh, what's the weather like up there? Yeah. Yeah, or, the, or some, this tiny chick in one of my classes in high school who always had food in her braces. I remember her once going, the best things come in small packages, well, like me. And I was just like, I well, don't even talk to you. Why are you coming at me with sure your bullshit? Sure, you're the exception to the rule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the best foodie braces come in small packages, love. Mm, El Chapo. It's <laughs> just like, why would you even bother? Do you know El Chapo is um, shorty? That's what it means? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. I guess he, that's why no one's ever called me that. It's, that's why he was called, because he was short. Ah. Yeah. So, I mean, not ironically named that? Like no, Aussies sometimes no. called Ginger's Bluey? He, he was five foot four or something. Ah. Oh, yeah. I could call you El Chapo as ironic, ironic name. As what? An ironic name. <laughs> you got there in the end, did you? Jay? I did. I did. I'm thirsty. Do you have any beverage? I do over there. Not, not in that way. Don't you have a story about going camping or something? Anything funny happened then? I saw a really big stick insect. Yeah? How big? About this big. That's not helpful on a podcast, is it? It was really good. He moved his hands to like... I don't know, 12 inches, average penis size, I guess. And I saw these two cicadas flying around, bumping into each other really loud, and I was doing that for about 20 minutes, and eventually I just screamed at them, just root already. <laughs> <laughs> and did they go like, hey, baby? And then they went, hey, baby, and then they had some sex. Did they do it on your head? No, nah, it was off in the distance. But they're, really, they're very quite loud, cicadas. Yeah, they are. Oh, rubbing their legs together, saying, I want sex. 
Oh, is that why they do it? Yeah, that's I, I all... just complain and like my head hurts a little bit. That's what all the insects are screaming at it. Um, do at, me, at... <laughs> go on, do me, yeah. do me. That's, that's what birds are saying when they sing, isn't it? Woo! Hey, uh, baby. I saw this barking owl on the news this morning. What? And it sounded. I was in the kitchen making coffee, and I could hear this barking sound. They're going, "What's that? Bar- Has it got a dog to bring in now?" There's this wildlife guy, and he brought in this owl, and it would just go bark, bark. <gasps> what? What? Yeah, barking owls. They're cool. Maybe I should get one. Oh. Am I allowed to have one? Sure, why not? Well, it was just my birthday. Will I'll, you get me one? I'll download one for you. How's that work? They come through a cable and then you add water and they expand. So you pour the water on the cable yeah. while it's plugged in, I'm assuming. While it's plugged so it's in. it's got power in it. That's right. Okay, good to know. According to one crime reporter, she saw more violence and death than any other woman in Australia's history. Whereas Dulcie never murdered anyone and was not a murder victim, she was... What was that? Uh, Siri is doing something. Stop. Close down, Siri. Just stop. You can't even control your sex robot, dude. My sex... Oh, fucking hell. So why don't I talk to Siri? Just stop. Turn off, Siri. Close. All right. Sorry, you have to do that bit again, I guess. Yeah, I know. By the way, I'm sure she is turned off, (laughs) but just not in the way you want. According to Angel of Death, Dulcie Markham, Australia's most beautiful badass woman by Lee Straw. (laughs) I don't think that's what it's called. (laughs) Oh, not badass. No, no. I believe believe Uh, her her booty was sensational. <laughs> I thought you did that on According purpose. to Angel of Death, Dulcie Markham, the woman with the sweetest bottom. Yeah, in Australian <laughs> crime history. Oh, there you go. There's an outtake for you. Well, all the reporters were totally just like jacking off oh, to their descriptions of her, weren't they? Drooling over They were her. writing erotic fan fiction, oh, much yeah. like the stuff you used to write about Minecraft. That's right. I still do. I just haven't published it for a while. Oh, that's a shame. Oh. <laughs> With Dulcie only a wee bub, the Markham family moved from their overcrowded terrace house in Surrey Hills to a bigger pad in the up-and-coming suburb of Waverley, close to the beaches of Bondi, Tamarara... Tamarama? Tamarama and Bronte. Bronte. And Bronte. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't grow up around there, did I? No, no, you didn't. Also, it's kind of like Tara teaches Barney how to talk. <laughs> <laughs> What's that word? That's in. Uh, well, the first word you fucked up today was Australian, and I figure you've probably never said it before. I mean, it's quite uh, a foreign word to you. Uh, I don't, what is it? Yeah, what does it even mean? How, how, how would you pronounce that? One I, doesn't know. I just can't get over how Woolamaloo's got so many O's in it. It's got like an eight. Yeah, someone bought a vowel or two, didn't they? I certainly did. In July 1920, when Dulcie was six... Uh, I was suspicious about that sentence, but I really had no reason for it. Yeah, I do that too. So Dexter got his new phone for his birthday, so I had to teach him some phone etiquette, you know, not because I forgot to teach Mo anything about it. Yeah. Because remember when I rang Mo the first time and he just he was just, I'm going, hello, is there anyone there? And he went, oh, yeah, I'm here. He oh, didn't yeah. know how to say hello when he answered the phone because <laughs> I never told him, taught him to. <laughs> so I'm not sure Dexter got that. Yeah, you taught your son how to say hello into a phone. Is that what you're telling me? 
Yes. Well, I mean, this time you did, but last this, time you failed. That's what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Making all the big, important parenting decisions. Yeah, that's right. Good work, champ. I'm proud of you. By the late 1920s, Scotty was in a gang, or push gangs as they were called in Australia. That's because of how much the push gangs like dancing to Salt and Pepper's Push It. Uh, yeah. Push It for you. They're sometimes called pushies. What pushie are you in? I'm in the Southside Pushies. I'm in the Salt and Pepper Pushies. Salt, salt and Pepper Calamari Pushies. Now that T-shirt I've got with a picture of a lawnmower and it just says Push It underneath. Oh, that's a, that's a long time ago, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You used to love your novelty T-shirts, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I don't like them now. Yeah, you don't really wear them anymore, no, do you? No. What turned you off? I don't know. I just don't like clothes with stuff on them. I like plain clothes. Did I, this, this shirt has a, a Jolly Roger on it. Yeah, it does. That's a thing. Well, that's because I'm in a pirate club and I oh. have to wear this. Yeah, you're in a pirate And it's game. Friday. It's pirate day, so I have to wear pirate clothes on pirate a Friday. Pirate pushy Friday. Yeah, it's pirate pushy Friday. You're also wearing red shorts with hibiscuses on them. What? What Are they your gang colours in your pirate pushy that's gang? That's in my pirate pushy gang. I have to wear red shorts. That's all, right. With flowers on them. Do all the other pirates also wear floral shorts? Well, sometimes I wear jorts, but I left them in the car. <laughs> <laughs> Why would your jorts be in the car is my well, question. Well, I took them when I went away to the, for a beach trip and then I forgot to bring them there in the back of the car. Mm, a likely story. I need more than one pair of jorts, obviously. I, I mean, you. clearly I need more jorts. You deserve two pairs of jorts, Barney. Yeah. No more, but no less. If anyone wants to send me jorts, so I have a 32-inch waist. Oh, my God. Um, just say Barney Black Jort Relief Fund Brunswick. <laughs> And it'll find its way to me. <laughs> it certainly will. It certainly will. You know they'll just send you like crocheted things and stuff. I'll wear that. Yeah, you the know, Facebook group. Everyone loves picking out pants for you. I know they do, but have I received any pants yet? Well, they were threatening to send you those those like freaky little um little denim hot pants. Fuck yeah, I'll little wear them. shorty shorty jordy jordies. I'll, I'll look damn good in them too. I don't know. Remember when when you insisted that we buy those gold hot pants when we were at the two dollar shop oh, and you put yeah. those on and you may as well have been wearing glad wrap. Like there was no thing left to the imagination. Yeah, that was a bit rude. Yeah, I noticed they haven't made it into any of our photo shoots, have they? Maybe today's the day. I like it. Like the other day, you made me wear those Santa shorts and none mm-hmm. of those none of that appeared in. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Photos too. Well, we don't do a lot of like, you know, focus on the crotch when we take pictures. And uh, more's a pity. I know, it's a shame. It's what the audience wants, but we're just being a little prudish by not giving it well, to them. Well, clearly it's a missed opportunity. Ah, bloody murder crotch shots. They go for a pretty penny on the I'll, dark web. I'll sign them. <laughs> Dear God, how uh, do we end up here? Good job. Yeah? Oh, uh, thanks. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, no, I know more like, yeah, no, 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 yeah, yeah, you're going to oh, listen you could, back. You could argue with me, just yeah, say, oh, that was <laughs> shit. <laughs> you know what it is? I'm so sweaty, it's hard to really know what's going <clears> on. <throat> yeah. And that's that's kind of sexy. No, it isn't. No. No, it's really not. No, it's like a sweaty pig rolling around in the same mud. No, mud. It's like one of those barking owls. Bork! I- Oh, no, actually, when he said sweaty pig, I was thinking of Pigsy from Monkey. Like, oh, um, oh, oh, the beautiful oh, ladies, no, beautiful Monkey. Oh, 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 monkey. Look, look, oh, look at all this food, Tripitaka. Mm, <laughs> oh, Tripitaka, no, let the dog, dog beat me. Hmm, I wonder if Scotty's friends threw him some kind of welcoming party. Yeah, blanket party, probably. Yes, yeah. I'd say so. How you going, Bruce? <laughs> ah.
How you doing, Alfred? Not too good, actually. I I had this party and I was really looking forward to it, but it was actually not fun. Yeah. Wasn't wasn't it wasn't like a nice party? It was it was a bad party. There was wasn't any pizza. There wasn't any fairy bread. There wasn't even any lollies or gift bags. Oh. And the only thing they pinned the tail on was me. Which you cunted like a slice of fucking cake. <laughs> of cake in a menacing voice is kind of cool. I don't uh, know why. That's right. There's something wrong with me. That's all right. It's like it's 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 all in what you say. Like if you say have a nice day, people have that. People say that all the time. But if you say enjoy the next twenty four hours, far kinder and more loving. Yeah, that's right. That's why I say to my mum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same. In the months following Scotty's death, Dulcie paid the part of a grieving widow. Part. Yeah, that's a word. Yeah, also, I didn't. Played was. Yeah, part's a word. You're, lear- you're learning. I thought, it was, I thought it was plot. Plot? <laughs> I thought, isn't that word normally plot? Doesn't no, it have an L in it? No, that's, um, that, that's when a plant farts. It's called <laughs> plot. a plot. Yes. <laughs> They're very rare. Oh, the rare and elusive plant plot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Smells like a green thumb. It smells like a green thumb. All right. Sydney is almost a city of knees now. So far as the feminine portion is concerned, this too is in the middle of winter. If women in obedience to fashion will display their knees now, when summer comes, what may we expect? (laughs) I hear it's a very short journey from knees to side boob. And next thing you know, it's just a whole wall of lady bottoms everywhere you look. Oh, there's a wall of bums on the Sydney beaches these days. Oh, women over 40 showing off their knees and their side boob and their bums. Oh, no, won't somebody think of my eyes. In November, she was charged with soliciting and was presented to the court as a known prostitute. She was placed on an 18-month good behaviour bond. I really enjoyed saying prostitute like that. Yeah, you know we're not supposed to say it at all, but in that context, it's probably uh, okay. I don't know. Prostitute for the bees. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's what they are. That's what they are. Flowers. Lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. 